0: this week after week, but the whole purpose of us doing this is to gain an understanding of the third member of the Trinity because there is so much misunderstanding in the body of Christ today about who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, what's His purpose, all of that. And so we've looked at that. We've gone line upon line, precept upon precept. I mean, I have tried to give you every scripture that I can find involving the Holy Spirit, especially in the New Testament, the application in our life. And so we have looked at that, the biggest of which would be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because, again, we just have so much confusion here from one denomination to the next. Is, is, is it a one-time event? Is it a secondary event? What is it? And this is what has separated the church. This is what's created so much contrast from one church to the next. And so when we talk about that and getting this point, we inevitably have to talk about speaking in tongues. There's no way to avoid it. And so the, the message today is called The Case for Tongues. And it's going to be two parts. And I'll tell you what's funny about that is because I try to stay at least a week ahead to two weeks and sometimes more if I can, um, as far as the sermon prep and all that kind of stuff, because it takes me a long time. And inevitably, I always hit one of those weeks where the phone's ringing off the hook. I got a whole bunch of stuff going on and I just don't have time to do it. So if I'm always a week ahead, I'm well prepared. And so this was one of those weeks where I had it all prepared, I knew what I was doing, I knew exactly how I wanted, how I wanted to do it, you hear how I'm saying that word, and had it all laid out, and so Thursday, I'm like, I'm going to go through and I'm going to start reviewing, I'm going to spend about, usually about 10 to 12 hours, you know, just going through my notes, going up through the scriptures again, and as I'm doing it, I can feel the Lord saying, no, you got to add this, you got to add this, and so it's going to be in two parts now. Unless you guys don't want to eat, in which we can knock it all out today. It may be dark when we get out of here. But, but the, and the reason, because I think it, it deserves that. You know, and, 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 and I'm one of those that I like things, you know, I want to know when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, all that kind of stuff. And so when the Lord begins to tweak my plans a little bit, sometimes I'm not into it as much, but we definitely got to do it. But it deserves that because, again, there's so much confusion of what tongues are and, and how do we use them and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so... The biggest place that I want to start is when we look at 1 Corinthians 14. And you don't, you can turn there if you like. We're not going to start there, but I, I want to just cover that. Because 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is really the application of the gifts of the Holy Spirit inside the church. The church being the building that we meet. When we gather together. And what there's nuances inside of that whole thing that talks about the separation between the public use of the gifts and the private use of the gifts. And this is what Paul does in, in 1 Corinthians 14, is that he dis- gives distinction between the gifts of tongues, which we talked about last week, um, the ones that would need to be interpreted, versus a prayer language that every believer can have, uh, every believer can pray in. And we have to distinct, uh, make these distinctions in here because... There's so much confusion in the body of Christ of what this is. And why do we believe the way we believe? And so here's the thing that you often hear when you're talking to somebody that believes very similar to what we have. It's like, have you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues? And this whole vernacular has changed over the years. It's actually gotten longer. And they'll say, with the initial biblical evidence of speaking in tongues. And we go through this whole rigmarole is that basically what we're saying is that if you don't speak in tongues, you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. We put this qualification on it. And so to go back a little bit historically, and this is some of the research that I did, this seems to have started really out of Azusa Street, where this whole teaching came from. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong or it's necessarily right. We're going to go through that in a minute. But when, when all of this started in actually in Wales in 1904, it spread to America in 1906. And all of us probably in here have heard of the Azusa Street Revival. And there were people that were praying for revival. And in that, many experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in that, they spoke with tongues. And William Seymour was the one that really started this, that preached that speaking in tongues was the initial experience, the initial evidence, whatever you want to call it, to the baptism. And this created some debate among the churches, because basically we could judge who had it by whether the fact they prayed in tongues or not. And out of this movement is where we see a lot of the Pentecostal denominations, what we would call that, um, the Assemblies of God, United Pentecostal, Church of God in Christ, things like that, how we're all birthed out of this movement. And so what's interesting is that when you look at at statistics around the world, globally, the number one church, and I'm using that word loosely, as far as the Christian denomination is, is Catholic. But number two would be this Pentecostal charismatic, however you want to do it. Now we are broken up into different segments, but it is the second largest in the world, but it is the fastest growing. And I don't think that's by coincidence at all. Because when you compare that to what we see in the book of Acts, between Acts 1 and Acts 2, it was after that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit that the church exploded. And Jesus was very diligent to say, I want you to go and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then go out into all the world. We do the opposite of that today. We tell everybody to go out into the world when they're not prepared. So, This would put a demand on tongues. It would put a demand upon it. And the reason I don't like that language is because I don't like to put a demand on something when it should be a desire. And you've heard me say that before. We are to desire spiritual gifts. Nowhere are we commanded to demand spiritual gifts. And so this is the distinction, and this is what we're going to talk about. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the book of Acts today. And we're going to lay a foundation that we're going to land next week. We're going to build upon next week. But what we're going to do is we're going to break down every occurrence inside the book of Acts where people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see how it was applied or how it was given and what was the evidence of it. Okay? So we're going to start in Acts chapter eight. Now I'm going to skip Acts chapter two, because we have talked about that almost weekly since we've started this series. In Acts chapter two, we all know what happened. Jesus told them to go and, and reach or go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon him. He comes upon them. They speak in tongues. everybody hears it around. It was a sign to the unbelievers. No doubt people come around. 3,000 get saved that day. We know that one. We know how the Holy Spirit fell upon him. He fell upon them corporately. It wasn't anybody laying hands on anybody else like that. It was corporately happened. And that the sign of that, the evidence of it, was most speaking in tongues. There's no question about it, right? We can see that. But Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 14. And this, and just a little precursor, and again, we probably all know this stuff. But Philip here um, goes in there, and he's preaching, and he's doing all this stuff. And a lot of people give their lives to Christ. And so in that, they send um, the other folks up and they say, okay, I want you to go and, and, and give them the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was John and Peter that did this. And so, I f- well, let's just stop there for a minute. Now, in that part of it, we can clearly see that this is a secondary event. Now, this is after the Holy Spirit had fallen for the first time. And so here is Philip, who is perfectly capable... Of laying hands on people for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could have fallen corporately just as he does in other places, which we'll see shortly. It could have been any other way, but for some reason he didn't, and Peter and John are sent up there. So, question number one: Could it at least, is it plausible that it is a secondary event? Of course we see this here. Okay. So it's at least plausible. So Acts chapter eight, starting at verse 14 says, now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy spirit for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy spirit. So how was the Holy spirit given to them? laying on of hands, okay? What was the evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit based on this passage? None, right? It doesn't say that they did this. It doesn't say that they did anything. Simply, if, if one, you, one could make the argument that they received by faith, okay? Because they don't see any evidence. Now, we could make the argument that that they saw something because after that, in verse 18, it talks about how Simon saw that through the laying on of hands that the Holy Spirit was given and he's trying to buy that ability and then, you know, whatever. So it would lead you to think possibly that they did see something and it's just not simply recorded. And that's a very valid argument. So There's nothing wrong with that. But again, if we're just going to take the text for what it is, there's no evidence given. There's nothing there that specifically says, here's what it is. So let's look at the next one. Flip over to Acts chapter 9. We're dealing with Saul, soon to be the Apostle Paul. Okay, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. And remember, Saul is the guy who's going around killing Christians, followers of the way. Not a good dude. Starting in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I'm going to stop there real quick. Because just remember, this is after Saul had had this encounter with Christ. He's blinded. He goes goes away, the Holy Spirit tells Ananias. Okay, I didn't set that up ahead of time, so I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. For my name's sake. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Okay, then that's baptized in water. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that. How was the Holy Spirit given in this circumstance? Laying on of hands. So we see that twice. What was the evidence here? There's none. There's nothing here that points to he received the Holy Spirit. If we're looking for evidence of it, there's nothing here specifically that talks about that. Okay? Over in Acts chapter 10. Flip the page again. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, we're talking about Cornelius. And this is this was not an Israelite, this was not any, he was a Gentile. He, he had rule over numerous people, all this kind of stuff. He was a soldier. The Lord, in a vision, gives to Peter to go to don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. And what he's doing, he's showing him. and people will use this to argue that now we can eat anything. We don't have to follow the dietary laws. That's not what this is saying, okay? But what he's saying is, is that just because he's not an Israelite, I have redeemed mankind, not just the Jews, Okay? So Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, he goes to him, he gets there, he's preaching to him all of that, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now when they talk about those of the circumcision, they're referring to the Jews. and obviously there was more people with Peter, He didn't fly solo. 46: For they heard them speak with tongues. And magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that there, these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay, how was the Holy Spirit given? It wasn't laying on of hands this time, it was corporately, right? What was the evidence in this case that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit? It was tongues and magnifying God. Okay. Now, what does magnifying God look like? We don't specifically know, but we have a pretty good idea. One stands up and is just singing praises to God, just worshiping Him and whatnot. And it talks about very clearly that it was because they heard them speak with tongues of magnifying God. So here we see some evidence as what we would say the biblical evidence of speaking in other tongues. So for the first time, we see that specifically stated here in the book of Acts. Now, with the exception of Acts 2, just eliminating that one. So we're kind of sandwiched here. we got the first one in Acts 2, again in Acts 10. Um, So we have to take that in stride. Okay, well, at least here, it it talks about that very clearly. The next one is in Acts 19. And this is in Ephesus, where we get in Ephesus, the Ephesians. Okay, we know that Paul went there, he wrote to them, because we have a book of the Bible that talks about that. So Acts chapter 19, and starting in verse 1. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper region, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now let's stop there for a second. We talked about this several weeks ago. He found some disciples. What does that mean? They were people who have already given their life to Christ. Let's go on. And He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said "And We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Sounds like a lot of churches around here, right? Verse 3, And He said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on Him who would come after Him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So here, how was the Holy Spirit given? Laying on of hands. What was the evidence of that? Speaking in tongues and prophesying, proclaiming the greatness of God. And so when we look at this, now I want you to look here in Acts 19, that... They were already saved, and that they were already baptized. And so Paul went upon himself, and he baptized them again, and then he laid hands. So we see salvation, water baptism, Holy Spirit in that order. Previous to that, we see salvation, baptism in the Holy Spirit, then baptized in water afterwards. So what does that tell us? Does it matter what order they go in? The only one that matters is salvation. It's only the first one. And so here's where we have a problem, is that most of us grew up in a church where either the gifts were completely abused or they were ignored, right? We either ignore them completely or it's completely abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that that how they're used and things like that. Now, why do people do that? Honestly, some of it has to do with pride. Some of it has to do with money. Some of it has to do with both. And there are other reasons. What happens when somebody proclaims that they flow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What do we naturally do? We flock to that individual as some sort of spiritual authority, and what does that typically lead to? It leads to dollars. If you write a book that says that, just as an example, that I visited heaven and here's what I saw, it's going to sell. Why? Because human beings are naturally drawn to the supernatural. It's part of our DNA. It's the way God made us. And you even see that with people that that aren't Christians, that aren't looking for God necessarily, things like that. What are our movies today? What do you see? It's all drawing towards some semblance of the supernatural. Now, they're probably looking for the wrong side of it, but it's there. We're naturally drawn to the supernatural. And so you see we're gifts have either been completely ignored or been abused. And I'll give you an example. I have a good friend of mine who was a pastor out in Kearney, Nebraska. And he and another pastor would get together almost weekly. They'd do a little Bible study to himself. This guy was a cessationist. In other words, he does not believe that the gifts of the Spirit are in operation today. Why does he not believe that? He does not believe it because of something that happened, not because he found it in Scripture. Here's what happened. There was a church that he grew up in that was a full gospel church, believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of that kind of stuff. And they would bring in this minister. And he would come in uh, frequently. I mean, two to three times a year easily. They'd have big meetings. And this guy would operate in a gift of knowledge to where... Um, you know, he'd sit there and he pointed somebody, your name is whatever, you live on X and X street, you know, whatever, and stuff like that. People are amazed by this. And truly, if you operate in that way, it is pretty amazing. Why? Because I don't have that ability. I have a hard enough time remembering your name after you tell me, let alone having the Holy Spirit inform me of it, okay? So, anyway, they would have private quarters in this church for this guy to prepare and, and pray and do whatever he had to do. And so, as part of his responsibility as a young man, as a youth pastor at this church, was to go and clean. The bathrooms and clean up after the guy left. And when he left, he's cleaning up, he's cleaning uh, the, the bathroom up and the tr- trash and whatnot. And he sees this list. And the list was a bunch of names with addresses and all sorts of stuff. And it happened to be the very same people that he called upon. And so because of that, this guy no longer believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in operation today. Now, here's the problem with that. We should get our truth from Scripture, not from boneheads, right? We've all been in a situation where somebody has abused a gift of the Holy Spirit or an authority that is a God-given authority. I mean, there are times that pastors abuse the authority that God's given them and act like they're so much higher and mightier and things like that. I mean, we just see it. Why does that happen? Because we're human and we are fallible. Does that mean that this guy never truly operated in gift of the Holy Spirit? Not necessarily. I mean, maybe, maybe he's just a complete fraud. Those guys are out there. And we are to be discerning, right? Okay, so that's why we test everything against Scripture. But, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't operating. Here's what happens because of our nature is that if somebody gets up there and does something, anytime somebody comes to see this guy, they're expecting something to happen. And we don't know what's going on in this guy's life and heart. And if it's not operating, he doesn't want to disappoint the crowd. Why? Because it affects the bottom line. It affects his pocketbook. He'll begin to make that stuff up. And that's why so many times you see great revivals that start off sincere and on fire for God get completely off base because we as humans are fallible. And we are not disciplined enough to truly just allow the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do in those type of things. So, that's a lot of the reasons why. So it's gone to a lot of arguments. More often than not, when you're dealing with somebody who has anything against the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's because of an experience. And because of the experience, they will go and find scriptures to support what they already believe. And that is the opposite of how we are to read our Bible. We go to our Bible as little children to glean from it and have it change us, not us change it. Alright, so let's break this down. This is how my mind works, and this is how I process things. I've created this little chart. It's quite simple, actually. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the passage, we're gonna look at how the Holy Spirit was given, and we're gonna look at the evidence from this. And so we went these side by side. We've got Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. It was the upper room. We all know this story. How was the Holy Spirit given? It was corporally. What was the evidence of that? Tongues, no question. We know it because we saw it. Acts chapter 8 it was with the Samarians. How was he given? It was the laying on of hands. What was the evidence? There was none. Acts chapter 9 and verse 10, talking about Saul, later to be Paul. How was it given? Ananias laid his hands on him. There we can see laying on of hands again. What was the evidence? None. But we need to pause there for a minute. We don't see it happen right there. But if you continue to read your Bible, the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament talks about, I pray in tongues more than all of you. So because we properly exegete Our scripture, we allow scripture interpret scripture. There's no question that the Apostle Paul spoke in tongues. It just happens to not be mentioned there. Now that gives us evidence to believe that possibly the same thing happened in Acts chapter 8. Because we know that Simon wanted to buy it. He saw something. Let's go on. Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius. How was it given? Corporately. What was the evidence? It was tongues and magnifying God. Acts chapter 19, dealing with the Ephesians, it was given by the laying on of hands. What was the evidence? Tongues and prophesying. So here's the thing, because we're so adamant that we have to have a certain way that we do things, and it always happens the same way, what do we see here? We see that the Holy Spirit can be given either corporately or through the laying on of hands. And all we know is that He's really the one that determines it, and we'll do both, and it doesn't matter. And what is the evidence of it? At a minimum, it's very likely tongues. Does that mean that's the only thing we're going to see? Not necessarily. So what's the conclusion we come based off of this is that I don't get too worked up if somebody says, well, I don't know that tongues is necessarily the evidence, but you will see something. There will be an evidence of sort that the baptism is there. So that's kind of where I lie. Some people argue, too, they're blue in the face with me that, that tongues is the evidence and all of that. That's fine. I don't lose sleep over it. You know, The bottom line is, is that we are to pray for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. No question about that. And when that happens, the power to, comes upon them to walk through this Christian life, to live in a way that magnifies God but allows them to get away from all the cares of the world. What I find interesting in this is that I have seen time and time again where people would come forward to be prayed for the baptism in the Holy Spirit and whoever is ministering at that moment will not let them leave until they pray in tongues. You can't leave. How many times has that been faked just to get off the stage? It's the same thing as that when you hold people in a room, I know somebody here needs to get saved, somebody here needs to get Jesus. and we ain't going home until you do it. Well, someone's going to raise their hand because they want to go home, Right? I mean, that's the bottom line. I have seen in in services where where the minister will go up, do you have Jesus? Yeah. Do you? you?" He'll go to each individual. Who's going to shake their head no? Nobody. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. We don't force anything upon anybody. We allow Him to do what it is He wants to do. He's God. Let's allow Him to be God. What do you say? Is that all right? Okay, here's the bottom line, is that we don't necessarily have all the answers when it comes to this. We don't know everything. We don't know why He does what He does all the time. We have Scripture to lead us to. But I would like to say that He's a little smarter than me. And so, therefore, I will heed to His leading. I will heed to His Word. And if he says to do something, I'm going to do it. I was just reading this morning. You know, it drives me nuts. I hate fanaticism because I just want the pure, unadulterated Word of God. And some of these guys out there that are operating in the gifts do some wild and crazy things. And I'm reading about Jesus going to the deaf and mute man. And, and if, if I was reading it correctly and I had looked at this, he stuck his fingers in the dude's ear and spit on his tongue, which is weird. If that's exactly it, I have to go back and read that again because I was like doing something and I'm like... I don't have time to go through this. I mean, that's weird, right? You better be led by the Holy Spirit if you're doing that kind of stuff. So anyway, so here's what we have. I want to go a few more minutes here. I won't take much longer, but when we look at tongues in and of itself, so we see that it's biblical, no question about that. We see kind of how the application of it works. How does one receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And what kind of is the evidence? There's, there's, there's something that we're going to see there. It's the same when somebody's born again. We will see fruit in their lives, but it may not be immediately, but we'll see a change in them. So here we go. There are four types of tongues that are mentioned and used in the Bible. And, and when I say types, I mean applications of them or however you want to say it. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 14. The first one is is that it is a sign to unbelievers. A sign to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22 says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Right? We see that here. What is he doing? Now, we've got to understand the context of that, and we'll go into this more next week, is that this is separating the private prayer use of tongues versus the public ministry use of it. In Acts chapter 2, this is where we really see this the first time. Verse 5, I'm just going to read this whole thing to you. Um, just because I think we need to. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? Galileans were unlearned people. They were what we call the redneck hillbillies of the day. Right? Verse 8, And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And I'm not going to read all the the different people because I can't pronounce half of them. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now, we can say one of two things, that they were either physically speaking a language that they didn't know, or these people were getting an interpretation of that. And I'm okay with either one, to be honest with you, because it doesn't clearly say they hear them in their own language. So we can make the, the, the argument that it's just being received, the Holy Spirit is giving them the, the interpretation of that, or that they're truly speaking language that they don't know. Either one of them is definitely a gift of the Holy Spirit, because we are not able to do that. I speak a no Spanish, okay? The only thing I can do is order food. You get past taco and nacho, nacho belgrande, I'm out. I don't know anything about Spanish. So, if you hear me speaking in Spanish, you better know it's God, because I don't own Rosetta Stone. So, anyway, moving right along. The second one is tongues for interpretation. And we talked about some of this last week. Tongues for interpretation. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. Tongues for interpretation. We see, we'll see this happen. It can be the individual who would interpret it because there's a verse a little further on that says if you give a tongue, you should pray that you receive the interpretation. It can also be somebody else that does it. And in my personal application of this, there have been times that before anybody ever got up to give out a tongue, I mean, I just, it was just like rolling. And then when I got up there, it just rolled off the tongue. Okay. But anyway, moving right along there, we we, we see this use, and it talks about later that tongues, without interpretation is like a noisy gong. But if it is interpreted, it's as good as prophesying. In other words, it's speaking the truth of God, the wisdom of God, whatever He has for that day, to everybody here in a way that we all can receive something from it. Okay? I'm trying to hurry here. Number three, personal prayer. Personal prayer. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. And this goes on and on and on. If I pray in a tongue, if means that I don't have to. It means if I do it, it's my spirit who's praying, and I don't have a clue what's going on. There are times that when we pray in the Holy Spirit, and I will show you how that works next week as far as that praying in the Spirit is the same thing as praying in the tongue. I will, I will break that down next week. But when I pray in the Spirit, it's my spirit prays. My mind has nothing to do it. When I pray in the understanding, I, I know what's going on. I'm praying for something specific, but sometimes I don't know as I ought how to pray, and the Spirit helps us. The last one, fourth one, is for intercession. Intercession, and this is in Romans 8. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now when we see that word groanings, that does not say tongues. But the bottom line is this, and you'll see this more next week. It's the Spirit helping us when we're weak. And when I pray in the Spirit, the Spirit is praying, my mind's unfruitful. He knows the heart of God. Who can search the things of God? The Spirit can, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He is God. How can I search the heart of God? The best I got is my Bible. And my understanding of that is limited. I don't have full revelation. Nobody does. Anybody who claims it's a liar. But the bottom line is this. We see it used in intercessory prayer. Sometimes one is awoken in the middle of the night, not knowing what's going on. So they begin to pray. There are times I know to pray. I don't know what to pray. And so by that, by default, I go and I pray in the spirit. This happened to me shortly after my wife and I got married. I woke up in the middle of the night. It was bizarre. It was kind of weird. I'm like, man, I just, I just need to pray. So I decided to go for a walk, and I just started praying. And I just didn't quit until I kind of felt it released. And I honestly have no idea what was going on. But all I know is I was just trying to be obedient, you know. And even if I'm wrong, what if it wasn't the Holy Spirit that woke me up? What if, what if it was indigestion? You know, whatever. Who cares? I spent time praying. I mean, we complicated. We're like, well, what if that's God? What if it's not God? Who cares? Ain't the devil telling you not to, to pray? I guarantee you that. We've got to, again, we've got to look at tongues as what they are. They are something that has been given to the believer that based on Scripture seems to point that everybody has the opportunity to do. But if we want to, we don't have to, if we choose to. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He's not going to make us do anything. He's not going to force the words out of our mouth or anything like that. We will build upon this next week. And we will finish this up because, again, I really believe that Part of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is when we don't know what to pray, which is often, we have an ability to pray, that the Spirit intercedes for us. Let's pray.